honestly, they should not have written a report until they were confident that they had the ability to decrypt this this video and to analyze it because that is the murder weapon. So it's like it's like going into a murder trial and saying, well, we have the gun, but the gun's like in a box and we can't open the box. So we're, we're just going to try the guy anyway. Like you would never do that. Welcome to episode 297 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views expressed here do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our family members, spouses, or pets. Uh, uh, today, uh, I'll be interviewing David Kay and Alex Stamos. David is a UN Special Rapporteur and Clinical Professor at UC Irvine, and Alex is the Director of the Stanford Inter. Internet Observatory, formerly the Chief Security Officer at Facebook. Uh, uh, we'll be talking about the uh, hacking of Jeff Bezos's phone. Uh, but first, the news roundup uh, with Nate Jones, who's the co-founder uh, co of Culper Partners, formerly with the National Security Council and the Justice Department, uh, and Nick Weaver, a senior researcher and lecturer in computer science at UC Berkeley. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, host and chief provocateur for today's program. Let's jump right in. Uh, uh, Nate, uh, the story of the last couple of weeks uh, uh, that's sort of tech related is that we have a new trade deal, phase one deal uh, between the United States and China, uh, uh, which has a lot of implications for tech and raises questions about whether um, China and the U.S. are in the process of uh, uh, healing the divide uh, over technology. What do you think? <laughs> Healing uh, might be a little bit of a strong word, but yeah, this this relates to one of one of several Trump uh, so-called trade wars that are going on, um, and one of their beefs is that a lot of the gains that China has made in the tech sector um, globally have have been done through a variety of unfair trade practices, and and there I think you know the the, the Trump administration has has a strong point. They've they've um, engaged in a variety of tactics historically to to build up and strengthen their own domestic technology and in industry um, to put them on a better footing to compete with foreign competitors and give them the space to grow in the Chinese market. And this has been done through um, things like forced technology transfers to Chinese companies, um, intellectual property theft, either domestically or or, um, or overseas through their surveillance capabilities, either, either state-run or state-supported. Um, they've uh, limited market access and conditioned it on things like JV requirements, um, forcing U.S. companies and other foreign companies to enter into joint ventures with Chinese companies in order to do business domestically, and then a variety of laws and regulations that um, they are, know, among other things, uh, that foreign companies are going to be a little uncomfortable complying with as a way to limit market access of these foreign companies. And then in re more recent years, we've seen them start to expand overseas and capture an increased share of, of key aspects of the tech industry in foreign markets by doing things like subsidizing local companies and and um, some, some aggressive investment strategies overseas. And one of the critiques of, of this Trump 
trade war with China, uh, with specific uh, implications for the tech industry, is that it it has you know sort of woken China up and and forced them to focus on on decreasing dependence on U.S. tech companies. I don't give that a lot of stock. That to me is a little bit of a bury your head in the stand strategy. Um, I think you know I give the Trump administration credit for trying to go out and and counter some of these unfair practices that China's been engaging in. And, you know, to be fair to them, this this uh, phase one deal does do a couple of important things. It, it, it tries to um, reduce these so-called forced technology transfers in China that they've uh, historically benefited from. And it does that by prohibiting the forcing or pressuring of foreign companies to transfer their technology to Chinese companies as a condition of market access. Uh, it uh, requires that any transfer or licensing be based on market terms and, and be done voluntarily. And then it tries to ensure that enforcement uh, and administrative proceedings in China when, when companies bring complaints on these grounds are, are fair and transparent and impartial. And then it does, uh, it also tries to to crack down on some of China's unfair um, intellectual property uh, theft and among other things by expanding the scope of civil liability for um, trade secret and intellectual property uh, misappropriation or theft. Um, So these are things that I think do actually try to get at some of the underlying uh, so-called abuses that China's been engaging in over the years. But there are there are a few important questions that I think remain. The first is a question of how effective these things can be. How can they really be enforced? Uh, well, and and it's whack a mole, right? Uh, they yeah, uh, the, the, they have found a bunch of things that Chinese bureaucrats have used to advantage Chinese industry and whacked them on the head, maybe. Uh, but that just challenges Chinese bureaucrats to be a little more creative and come up with something that hasn't already been uh, covered by one of these agreements. And uh, yeah, you know, I think they're pretty right. good at that. Yeah. The way they accomplish these things are sometimes more subtle, and they're going to argue that these things don't technically violate the terms of the phase one deal, obviously. And, and you know, one of my big beefs here is that, you know, China, China is sufficiently um, sophisticated and, and at this point powerful globally on the economic side that it it has the ability to get away with this. And it's one of the big dangers of going at this alone. Um, you know, they, I think the Trump administration would be a much better position if they were, they were combating some of this with other allies. And frankly, if they were working more closely with the U.S. tech sector to develop a more uh, coherent and comprehensive strategy to maintain our global competitiveness in this space. Kind of whack-a-mole with, an, with a smaller and smaller hammer every time you go back to try it. Exactly. And, and there's also a question of, of whether this is too little, too late, you know, how much of this genie can be back, put back in the bottle at this point. Um, you know, uh, you can certainly try to, to stop the proliferation of this um, going forward with, with new technological developments. But there's been a lot of water under the bridge so far that, that you're just not going to be able to get back. And so, um, you know, it's going to be really hard to control at this point. And again, I think the big uh, challenge, and, and it is a challenge, this is not a, 
this is not a critique necessarily of the limited success that the Trump administration has had on this front, um, because because it's hard to to accomplish these things, as I said, particularly when you're going at it all by yourself. But it, to me, this their 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 approach to maintaining um, you know uh, these competitive advantages for American companies globally has has felt a little bit more like a series of of tactics designed to address um, specific problems that they've identified historically, and not enough like a coherent strategy for for trying to to build a coalition to push back on certain Chinese practices that are hurting not just American companies, but, um, but other foreign competitors as well. Yeah, it's like I, I, uh, I have watched USTR uh, uh, reps over 30 years try to deal with these problems and they, um, they keep coming back to the same sets of uh, complaints and the same sets of remedies because that's really all they've got. Uh, 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 compared to past US trade rep uh, efforts, this looks pretty good. But mm-hmm. as a solution, as a as a large scale solution to the problem of um, unfair trade terms with uh, China, I think it's pretty modest. Band aids, yeah. But I, you, you did bring up uh, genies in the bottle, and I have to say there was a genie I thought we had gotten back in the bottle, which was internet voting. Uh, and and of all places, the home of uh, Amazon uh, Web Services and Microsoft has decided, oh, yeah, what could be better than using your phone to vote for local government? Uh, Nick, I, I, what, is, what is in the water out there? I don't know, but this is the point where my response is gift form. Michael screaming, no, no, God, no, no, no. That, as far as I can tell, what it is, is the uh, conservation district, rather than being part of a larger election, has their own independent election that basically you have to request a ballot, they send it out, and they are wondering why they only get 4,000 votes out of a million eligible voters. And they're bitching about so, the fact that the postage was too much to mail out the uh, the, the ballots to people. So that's their problem is that it costs too much in postage to send people ballots for them to fill out. Basically, it costs too much in postage to send ballots to everybody. But if you have to request online, then nobody bothers. So now instead of requesting online, your request online allows you to also fill out your ballot and electronically sign it on your touch screen that will somehow be magically checked against uh, your signature on file. Basically, this is not a method that I would use to elect a dog catcher. Well, that's pretty much what they are doing. But yes, it's crazy. They, and why do they say it's secure? Magic pixie fairy dust. That's it. I should have known. No, magic pixie PDF dust. Apparently it's all, it's because it's a PDF. And so, you know, the PDFs are secure. Uh, uh, you know, Adobe doesn't have any security problems. Well, once you sign it on your smartphone tablet, then they'll match your signature. Using, uh, if you, But you can use electronic signatures, which just means you put 
S and your name, and it is electronically signed according to the Electronic Signatures Act. This is this this is Except insane on every for level. For this case, the electronic signature is not the Electronic Signature Act style, but actually scribbling on your smartphone tablet. And we all know because we've done this so so often now for Visa and Mastercard to how much the our fingernail signatures resemble our actual handwritten signatures, which is to say vaguely. Uh, the, the, yeah. the, the idea that you can prevent, you can detect forgeries in that context is preposterous. And so basically all you need to do to get about 300,000 votes for uh, Donald Duck is you get a 300,000, 400,000 voter names, address, date of birth. Oh God, I think you can buy that in bulk. Use a botnet and send a... 400,000 votes with kind of scrawly signatures and three quarters of them will be accepted. So what are the odds that Vladimir Putin will actually win the King County uh, Conservation District uh, uh, race? Uh, uh, this would this be a, a piece of cake to, uh, uh, to uh, de- develop bots that could vote. Yes. The problem is, is if you do that, and admit to it, you get thrown in jail. So nobody is going to waste their massive uh, interference campaign on this uh, dog catcher election. Instead, what they'll do is watch, hope, and wait for it to be adopted for something larger, and then do the massive interference. Just astonishing. King County, get your head out of your butt, start mailing out ballots. Stuart, the term you're looking for is they're suffering from rectal cranial inversion syndrome. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Nate, uh, I'm not going to f- try to fashion a, uh, a, a segue on top of that one. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, Thank you for let, that. Exactly. Let me ask you the FISA court issued an order, which is getting a lot of attention because it seems to have said, uh, uh, that uh, it is assuming now, and it believes the government is assuming, that at least two of the four FISA uh, warrants uh, for wiretaps on Carter Page are invalid. What's the significance of that, uh, and uh, uh, what's the legislative fallout going to be? Yeah, I, you know, I think this is hugely significant. It's it's hard to overstate this. I, you know, I can't remember the government acknowledging that its probable cause determination and basis has fallen apart in the FISA context. The thing that may have come closest, if you remember back to the the uh, Brandon Mayfield investigation, yeah, yes, right. um, where there there were some flaws in their fingerprint analysis, and they had acknowledged that they had obtained a FISA in that case. Um, so it, it's possible that they've done this before, but it's exceedingly rare. And you know their fallback has, uh, you know, when they've been subjected to critiques about um, the FISA court being a rubber stamp and, and being insufficiently transparent has always been the rigor that they apply to these applications and the, the level of care that they, they apply to, to their work in this space. And the million dollar question that remains after this was, is, you know, was this some aberration 
or is this a broader problem that um, exists uh, in the Pfizer process? And you know, in terms of the the legislative fallout, it's it's a little hard to say, right? We you know we saw a a push uh, the first time around when uh, in the the first uh, half of Trump's term when Nunes and, and his allies in the House were, were pushing some of the slightly different but uh, related critiques in that they were connected to the Carter Page FISA applications. And, and you know, once, uh, you know, ardent supporters of, of FISA surveillance authorities had started to turn on it. Um, but at the end of the day, nothing really happened. And the question I think is, is does this news of Carter Page, does the, the crumbling of this, um, this PC determination uh, alter that landscape a bit? Is the president and his administration going to push for reforms at some point? If they do it, they are going to meet significant resistance in the intelligence community bureaucracy, I think. And and you know this is a a type of authority that that with one exception really has been a one way ratchet and that exception was the the FISA amendments act post Snowden um, where Congress dialed it back a little bit but for the most part this has been an area where we have gradually ceded more and more um, latitude to the executive branch in conducting national security related surveillance. The spokesman for the national security bureaucracy on FISA matters is the Justice Department that just confessed error and didn't have to, and which is headed by somebody who has expressed grave doubts about the whole enterprise uh, of uh, uh, the uh, Russia investigation uh, launched uh, in 2016. So I, I, you know, I, uh, I think that it is entirely possible that we'll see some effort on the part of the administration to come up with a reform package, especially because the alternative is this uh, absolutely nutty kitchen <laughs> sink bill that uh, uh, Ron Wyden and Steve Dane from Montana have have uh, put forward, in which. Any criticism that uh, that has been made by the ACLU and the EFF uh, uh, since the beginning of time is vindicated uh, uh, as a new restriction on FISA. You wouldn't have any FISA uh, warrants under this uh, set of rules, uh, and you certainly wouldn't be protecting national security. You know the the Wyden bill is. Um, I guess I'm I'm not quite as pessimistic about some of its provisions as you are, but you're right that a lot of these things have been longstanding critiques. Um, they've been proposals that have been being bandied about for for years now and aren't directly related to the the types of problems that were uncovered by the Inspector General General. Um, you know, there are things like ending the, the phone metadata program, um, which NSA itself has, has said it, it doesn't want to seek renewal of, but the Trump administration may have different designs for that. You know, the fundamental difference, I think, between the national security and the criminal process in this space is, is not really the lack of an adversarial process. Um, it's instead the, the, the likelihood that this stuff is going to be pressure tested at a later date. And 
you know, with so few prosecutions arising out of these national security surveillance authorities, um, you rarely, and DOJ knows this going in, these things are rarely going to be tested on the back end, certainly not in the same way or with the same frequency that you have in garden variety criminal investigations. And that's probably the one aspect of the Wyden bill that does bear some relation to uh, this IG investigation. And that is his effort to, to ensure that individuals charged criminally are notified of the use of FISA authorities uh, to collect on them and to, to ensure that they have, um, there are limits placed on the, the government's ability to do parallel construction and, and avoid um, scrutiny of their underlying FISA applications. So if, um, I can, if, I can, if I can do a retro segue, anybody in the administration who was working on this Carter Page FISA and who did not think it was going to be pressure tested to afterwards is really suffering from a rectal cranial inversion. <laughs> I, I, it, 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 of course, this was the the most dangerous uh, uh, FISA application that they had handled in years. And and I, I if I were if I were advising the administration, which I am not, uh, um, I would say when there's stuff like um, the Wyden bill, joined by conservative Republicans like Steve Daines, uh, uh, you need to change the uh, the narrative and come out with your own approach that says the problem with the Carter Page uh, 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 warrant was that implicitly or explicitly people said, yeah, well, Trump's got it coming. Uh, it, you know, what's the problem? He's going to lose. Uh, he's, a, he's a jerk. Uh, he is behaving weird with Russia. Uh, we can do this. Uh, and there's no political risk of us being accused of partisanship. Uh, the uh, the substantial fear that we're going to have on both sides of a partisan misuse of FISA is a better place to be looking for uh, institutional protections and safeguards than all this, uh, you know, stuff from the ACLU and Ron Wyden that's been kicking around for for years. That's not where the abuses occurred. They occurred yeah. in in uh, uh, surveilling your political opponents. And you know, I think one of the things that is most difficult for FBI to explain here um, on this question of whether this is a, a widespread problem or some aberration is that when you actually look under the hood of the Mueller investigation, there were a variety of ways in which, at least in my view, they were exceedingly cautious in what they did because of the political dynamics of this investigation. And you're right, Stuart, you would have expected them with this Carter Page application to have been just as cautious, if not more cautious than they were in these other aspects of the investigation. And they screwed it up. Some of the stuff they did was designed to prevent a leak, moving everything into headquarters, having people yeah. come in on a 90-day uh, uh, detail to work on it and then go home to your, your home office uh, uh, someplace else uh, meant there was no continuity or not much uh, and people didn't catch inconsistencies. So, you know, the, the investigation was snake-bitten for sure. But they should be asking themselves when the next time this happens, and it's going to happen again, how should we be handling it and how much of that do we have to put in statute? 
So speaking of uh, uh, civil liberties outrages, maybe, Brazil has charged Glenn Greenwald with uh, cyber crimes in a context where he basically is saying, I lawyered this, uh, sort of sounds a lot like uh, uh, the Justice Department. I lawyered this from the minute, to, from the beginning to the end. I was always getting legal advice about what I could say to the hackers who had extracted this information that they were leaking to uh, the Brazilian, uh, well, actually to Glenn Greenwald. And uh, he has nonetheless been charged at least temporarily with participation in the hack. Uh, uh, Nate, how good is that as a if – if, if this were the United States, would the, the prosecutors have a case? Based on their filing, it's pretty thin in my opinion. Um, you know, most of their uh, evidence that they presented in, in their complaint uh, involves his conversations with the hackers after the fact. I didn't see much, if anything, in their – uh, that he was uh, talking with them about prior to or contemporaneous with the hack. You know, there, there's some unflattering comments about, you know, destroying some of the evidence and things like that. Um, but that doesn't really go to the core charge that they've leveled against him, which is his involvement in the hack itself. Nick, what do you think? Uh, um, a, any uh, technical aspect to this that uh, struck you uh, uh, as uh, leaning in Greenwald's favor? Uh, yes, a huge amount. Um, firstly, the agree that it's far less of a back and forth than, say, the Assange case. Secondly, we have to remember what Brazilian politics is like. Right now, they are led by a president, Bolsonaro, who is basically Trump turned up to 11 with a bit more cunning. And he's been going after his um, previous rivals in the whole lock them up tradition. And there's been a lot of evidence of malfeasance. Greenwald is a player in uh, Brazilian politics. His uh, uh, husband is a uh, uh, elected official uh, in the parliament, uh, yeah, uh, and, and, and he's been a thorn on, under Bolsonaro's uh, uh, saddle forever. Yes, and there's been a fair amount of leaking and hacking about the investigations in question. This case is particularly stinks to high heaven for two reasons. First is this evidence was already presented to a judge who said this is not criminal behavior. Um, and also the other part that stinks is it's forcing me to defend that chimp with a chain gun. <laughs> yes, I, 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 I well, I, I feel the same way, uh, and and I'm just going to not uh, defend him. But, uh, <laughs> it, it, uh, this is this is Brazilian politics, as they say. Brazil is not for beginners. Uh, um, uh, he chose the place where he wanted to play politics, uh, and he's played it. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, maybe he's getting the raw uh, a raw deal here. I can't tell for sure, uh, uh, but uh, uh, I, I don't feel enormous moral outrage on this one. Uh, it's uh, these are the consequences of uh, playing close to the to, to the legal line in a country where the legal lines blur all the time. 
and the judicial system doesn't exactly have a strong reputation for fairness and impartiality. So I, I'm, here's something more I won't defend. <laughs> Google has redesigned its search results so that uh, it used to be that they, they had ads uh, and they used to be very easy to tell they were ads and you could skip them. And then they started just writing ad, the word ad next to them, and you had to kind of be on your guard, but you could skip them. Uh, and now they've started adding uh, little uh, uh, logos next to their real search results uh, that don't say ad, but make the search result for the uh, actual uh, search results as opposed to the ads look much more like the ads. So that's visually much harder to tell. And then they uh, they got caught doing this and have announced that, oh, oh, yes, we're changing that. Uh, 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 Nick, uh, uh, what do you think? Uh, uh, is this, uh, am, am I overreacting to Google's uh, design changes uh, or, or uh, are they going to fix it uh, the second time around? Uh, you are not overreacting. I like to say the greatest trick the app devil ever did was convince the world he didn't exist. Number two was making people think don't be evil actually meant something. Well, don't be what getting caught. Happened? Don't be getting caught doing evil, I think is now the, uh, the message. <laughs> yeah. So Amazon, has, or I mean, sorry, uh, Google has been basically boiling the frog on ads, making them look more and more like organic search results. And they just basically went one step too far finally got some pushback and their new re-redesign is basically designed to do the same thing just while being able to say, oh, the ads are slightly more clearly marked. And the thing is, it really matters to Amazon or to, to Google because Google basically has a protection racket going on. So I do a search for product name Amazon. What does this mean? It means I want to buy this on Amazon. Now, what happens is ads come up for both Amazon and others. And Amazon has to pay for those ads because uh, Google allows other people to advertise against it. And usually they have two or three ads. Uh, does that mean that Amazon has to buy all three places? Sort of. So what happens on those search ads is you only pay when the user actually clicks on it. Uh -huh. And so what ends up happening is now you click on the first Amazon link. It's Amazon's paid link. Google gets paid by Amazon when the next link down is the organic search result and Amazon doesn't have to pay. So it's effectively a protection racket. Yeah, I, I was struck by their 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 claim that they were fixing this by saying, no, we're going to test a whole bunch of different ways of displaying this. Well, they do that all the time. Yeah, that's A-B testing. Yeah. Uh, 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 but the question is, how will they know that they have broken trust with their customers by A-B testing? Uh, the only way they can tell whether A-B testing is working is whether they're making more money or not. I, 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 I just don't think that there's a way to A-B test a loss of trust or a manipulation of consumers uh, uh, in this context. So their, their, their claim that they're testing and we should draw comfort from that doesn't doesn't comfort me at all. In fact, what the A-B testing is really good for is developing the best, most effective dark pattern, the visual representation that causes the most deliberate confusion 
while not getting objections from people because they can say, oh, we clearly blah, blah, blah. And we are going to see Avast Antivirus doing the same thing as it was just revealed that the Avast free product basically reports all your web surfing to a Avast subsidiary, basically without your knowledge or consent. And they finally gotten pushback. I thought we actually covered this and uh, they've gone back in response to that publicity and said, oh, yes, we're going to ask people's permission. And they are now popping up uh, permission uh, requests to collect the information, whether they're disclosing uh, that they they can actually uh, determine which kinds of porn you like best. I'm guessing not. Correct. And it's another classic example of dark pattern engineering at its uh, air quotes best making it so that you can claim that the user gave consent when the user really didn't. And I encourage all the listeners to disinstall Avast. And if you're running Windows, Microsoft does really good antivirus these days. Just use Windows Defender. I think we're going to start a bunch of anti-sponsors, uh, 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 people who would would have paid not to be mentioned on the Cyber Law podcast. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> that's pretty much everybody we cover. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, this episode of the uh, Cyber Law podcast has been not brought to you uh, by a vast uh, antivirus software. Uh, so thanks to Nate Jones and Nick Weaver for joining me. Uh, this has been episode 297 of the Cyber Law Podcast, uh, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Now I'm going to turn to our interview with David Kay and Alex Stamos. Okay, our interview today is uh, with David Kay, who's one of the UN special rapporteurs, uh, uh, in his case for freedom of expression, uh, who issued a statement uh, that really be kicked off this uh, latest controversy uh, calling for an investigation into allegations that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, was involved in hacking Jeff Bezos's phone. Uh, uh, so uh, joining us uh, not only uh, to discuss that but other topics is uh, David Kay as well as Alex Stamos, who's the director of the Stanford Internet Observatory uh, and former chief security officer at Facebook. And so uh, let me just try to start this out and begin it the way the story began for most of us who were just reading about it in the paper uh, with a report from two uh, uh, UN Human Rights Commission uh, rapporteurs, and uh, David uh, is one of them. Uh, David, how did you get involved in this story, and uh, uh, what was your report about? Stuart, thanks for having me. It's really it's great to be on your podcast and always great to be on with Alex as well. So, I mean, I think it's helpful to back up a little bit. Um, you know, so in, in my own work uh, following freedom of expression issues around the world, we've been focused, um, you know, much as Alex has been on digital security and the way in which, you know, in all sorts of uh, kind of different contexts, insecurity online has a deep impact on interfering with freedom of expression. And um, for me, this started uh, five or six years ago when I did a report for the Human Rights Council on encryption and anonymity. But over the last couple of years, I've been focused in particular on the private surveillance industry. Um, that is, you know, companies around the world that um, that's basically sell exploits to other to governments 
in order to allow them to conduct um, digital surveillance. And you know, one of the putting aside the companies that are involved, it's been clear for for several years that one of the major purchasers of these kinds of exploits has been the government of Saudi Arabia. Um, even the the head of security for the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman bought a stake in Hacking Team, uh, which is an Italian private surveillance company. It's changed its name recently, but uh, but they've had a long term interest in this and. Citizen Lab, a, um, a, a group based out of the University of Toronto, has identified the use of uh, an Israeli company's uh, tools, the Pegasus software, in a number of cases involving uh, Saudi surveillance of dissidents. So this had been on a radar for quite some time when, over the course of the fall, uh, people reached out to us, uh, sharing with us basically allegations that using tools like this, not necessarily this specific tool of Pegasus from the NSO group, but um, allegations that uh, that Saudi Arabia, and in particular, an account operated by the crown prince of Saudi Arabia had been involved in a hack of the phone of Jeff Bezos. That's, that's what we learned uh, basically in November of, of last year. And that that kind of launched our effort to understand a little bit more what these allegations were about. So the the allegations had been made earlier, if I remember right, by uh, the security advisor to uh, to Jeff Bezos. Uh, um, but there wasn't much behind them, and it looks as though they mm-hmm. went out and hired FTI uh, consulting uh, to uh, do a deeper dive on uh, uh, Jeff Bezos's phone. Uh, and then they gave it to you. Is that uh, how that uh, that played out? Uh, well, we did receive the report. I can't say exactly how we received it, um, but but I would say first of all that you're correct. I mean, these the allegation, the general allegation that the Saudis had hacked into Jeff Bezos's phone was made, I think, last March or April by uh, Gavin De Becker who's Bezos's security chief. So you're absolutely right about that. I mean, I at the time, I had noticed that. Obviously, uh, you know, that a lot of people noticed that. Um, but I didn't do anything with that information. There was, there was as you say, there was nothing behind it. Uh, it wasn't until uh, we received the report that Agnes Calamar, the special rapporteur on summary executions, you know, who had done this big report on the Khashoggi murder, uh, that she and I looked at this. We shared it with independent experts uh, and uh, and made our decision about how to go forward. So when uh, can you tell us who looked at it with you that that gave you comfort uh, about the statement you put out? I, I, mean, I can't tell you who who exactly looked at it. Um, they would be people that um, that certainly Alex would know and 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 you might know, but but I don't have their permission to do that, but we, um, so let me say a couple of things. I mean, one is we went to independent experts, not with uh, the request that they say this is absolutely right. And, and, and you know, the FTI report itself uh, says that um, its conclusions are with medium to high confidence, um, you know, that, that uh, Bezos's phone was hacked in this way. We, you know, basically, and maybe to step back even more, our role as special rapporteurs is not to uh, necessarily draw, at least at this stage, 
the technical conclusions that I know Alex will talk about and that we'll, we'll talk a little bit uh, about in a moment. I mean, our role is to determine, as we do in every kind of case that comes to us, whether there is uh, sufficient information to warrant further investigation. And that's, that's exactly what we were calling for. In fact, the week before last, we sent a formal letter to the government of Saudi Arabia saying, we are in receipt of these allegations and we have a number of questions uh, about them. Um, we thought they were so serious that they deserved raising in a public way as well. But, um, but you know, we're not making our own conclusion about whether this is, um, you know, this is absolutely the case. This is, this is correct. I mean, our, our goal is to generate, in a way, just what's been happening, which is conversation, debate, further investigation into the nature of um, this alleged hack. But David, you may know, and I certainly ought to disclose, I have occasionally on this program said uh, um, the difference between the views of a UN special rapporteur and some random American law professor are pretty minimal, that uh, uh, the rapporteurs are named without pay, they don't speak for the UN, uh, but they have some role. What, what What is your role exactly? So the Human Rights Council, which is the central human rights body uh, of the UN appoints human rights experts, um, I put experts in quotes, um, to, um, to report on specific areas of human rights law. So I do, um, you know, uh, kind of major um, investigations, uh, thematic reports to, to the UN, both to the, to the General Assembly and to the Human Rights Council. When we investigate these particular kinds of cases, I mean, our role is really to um, to uh, ensure that governments are uh, are meeting their obligations under human rights law. Uh, we don't have enforcement power. You're absolutely correct. I'm glad you mentioned we do, we do this without pay. Um, we do this as a as a kind of effort to inform the the global conversation, but especially inform what the Human Rights Council might do. So our role is to raise these questions, to ensure that um, that they are monitored by the Human Rights Council, and to ensure that governments around the world understand, um, because many, many, uh, you know, simply do not have the, uh, have a kind of external oversight. I mean, certainly when we're talking about countries in the Middle East or Southeast Asia or many other places, they don't have something like the Inter-American Court for Human Rights or the European Court for Human Rights. There is no other oversight. So we're providing that kind of oversight. Of course, you know, there's, there's a level of risk in that because we are conveying allegations that we think are serious and credible enough. And you know, sometimes those allegations simply do not pan out. Um, but I think, I think by and large, what we're trying to do is to highlight the nature of I mean, in my case, the nature of glo the global assault on freedom of expression, um, and particularly the global assault through digital technology. I hope that kind of gives an overview of what we're trying to do. That's 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 very useful. I assume one of the perks is that you get uh, uh, spyware from all over the world. <laughs> you know, one of the perks, honestly, is I'll say two. Um, one is when I'm, uh, you know, in my in my role as a law professor at UC Irvine. In the past, if I reached out to a security expert, um, I mean, Alex would respond to anybody, I'm sure, but they wouldn't necessarily respond um, in a full way. And, you know, now they do. And I also have access to, 
you know, to, to, to people who are at the very top of the field and helping us answer these kinds of questions. I, it's, I mean, it is remarkable in that, po- in that respect. And, you know, my hope is that we do it with a level of um, kind of professionalism and moderation uh, that, uh, that is warranted by these, these very high stakes kinds of issues. You've introduced uh, the high level expertise that we can draw on, that you can draw on, and, and uh, remarkably I can draw on. Uh, uh, Alex, um, uh, you are our expert on this. Uh, uh, you've looked over the FTI report. Uh, how good a case does it make and what could it do to improve that case? So thanks for having me on. Uh, I want to start to say is it is quite possible that FTI is right and that uh, the Saudi intelligence services uh, hacked Jeff Bezos' phone. I I just don't believe that this report makes the case. And certainly with the evidence they laid out, I would not have uh, said that this is a conclusion you can draw with moderate to high confidence. So So, let's, let's start with FTI. FTI, I've worked with FTI. They are a very competent forensic firm, if you're doing an internal investigation and you want to uh, image all of the uh, uh, hard drives of all the employees you suspect of wrongdoing and all their phones and collect all that and put it in a relativity da- database, they they do a fine job. Uh, uh, this, is a, this is an adjacent field that presumably, because there's a lot of money to be made here, they've been wanting to get into. But cybersecurity and uh, reviews of who's attacking whom are different skill sets, and and I don't think FTI is really known for that. No, they're not. So first off, I mean, I feel very uncomfortable questioning the professionalism of right. uh, some some colleagues like this. So you know, I, I'm sure FTI is a, a fantastic firm in a lot of ways, but in the computer forensics world and in kind of cybersecurity in general now, you really have people come to private industry from two tracks. They come from the law enforcement track or they come from the nerd track. And in my experience, being a CISO of a couple of companies, you know, being both a consultant and then a consumer of consulting services, in this kind of work, you want a real synthesis of that. You want to have both of those kinds of expertise at hand. And when you look at the FTI report, they draw a lot of their conclusions, not from the technical artifacts they're able to retrieve from the iPhone, but from the the general kind of uh, circumstantial evidence of weird behavior by MBS, the sending of a photo that looks somewhat similar to Lauren Sanchez, the 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 woman that Bezos allegedly had an affair with. And that is not, it is odd to see that kind of stuff, to be honest, in a technical forensics report. Because so there's nothing wrong with it. It actually it can, can be very helpful. Uh, it, it, was, it was particularly useful in attributing, say, the Sony attack, that there was yes. only one country in the world that wanted that movie stopped. Um, but uh, you're right. You, you need something more than that. And, and this is long on lawyer talk or law enforcement yes. talk and short on nerd talk. It is. It is. Uh, it is. It demonstrates that the people who put this report are thoughtful, competent, careful people. But the way they look at these systems is through code that they bought, right? That's the big difference you see in kind of people who come from a law enforcement background versus people who come from like a more of an engineering background is the law enforcement folks are taught to run a checklist based upon graphical tools that allow them to look at a system and they, they run the checklist. And when they run into something odd, sometimes they get stuck. And, and it doesn't feel like in this case that FTI had the technical experience to deal with that. And specifically in this case, the, the their theory of the case is that uh, a video was sent over WhatsApp 
uh, that Bezos opened. And then that was the start of malware being installed on his phone. This is totally plausible. Uh, during the period of time that we're talking about, there actually was a vulnerability in how videos were handled by WhatsApp that could have been exploited. And so it's, it's a totally plausible theory. If that is true, then the evidence of that initial exploitation must be in that initial video. There is no way that you could create a video that would do this and then not have some kind of evidence built in. And something that is very unclear from the report is do they have access to that video? Because they, they spend a bunch of time talking about how because of WhatsApp's end-to-end encryption, they can't get into the video. And that's just not true. And, and a number of people have talked about this. Uh, some folks from Citizen Lab, a friend of mine, Dino Dezavi, actually wrote code in a couple of days and posted it publicly that they could use to decrypt it. But that's the kind of thing that Honestly, they should not have written a report until they were confident that they had the ability to decrypt this this video and to analyze it because that is the murder weapon. So it's like it's like going into a murder trial and saying, well, we have the gun, but the gun's like in a box and we can't open the box. So we're, we're just going to try the guy anyway. Like you would never do. And we have the knife. It still has blood on it. See, here it is. Uh, but we never tested it for DNA. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, they have they did not go. Uh, they spent all this time talking about the circumstantial evidence of, of bizarre text, which the, the best part of this report is that these billionaires are basically trolling each other on WhatsApp, which is so I, I know, have to say the the, the 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 picture that's supposed to look like Lauren Sanchez one yeah. doesn't really uh, and yeah. I and I actually did a Google image search on that that image of that woman that's supposed to look like Laura Sanchez has been floating around the internet for at least five years before it went to uh, uh, Bezos, which doesn't prove anything exactly. Uh, and the other thing right. is is this kind of sad, you know, a kind of not very good joke, uh, which accompanies it, which is uh, um, arguing with a woman is like reading a software license agreement. In the end, you're just going to have to click I agree. And then it has this picture of this girl. Uh, yeah. a, and you kind of say, Okay, that's the evidence that she looks a lot like Lauren Sanchez. I I bet if you ran Lauren Sanchez through Google or reverse image search, you would never find this woman uh, uh, in uh, as a match. Uh, um, yeah. and that was I, I thought that was kind of not so good. There was a better one in which uh, uh, Bezos had received a briefing. Uh, about why Saudi Arabia was going after him and the Washington Post uh, I, on day one. And two days later, he gets an unsolicited message from the crown prince saying, trust me, we, we have no beef with Amazon or with you. Uh, uh, if you're hearing anything to the contrary, it's wrong, uh, um, which does sort of suspect, uh, lead you to suspect that maybe he knew what briefings Bezos was getting. But all of right. that, uh, what's the technical case uh, um, here? The the scope of the exfiltration of data that occurred after the uh, uh, opening of the MP4 file? Right. So because they got stuck, it looks like, examining the video that might have done the initial exploitation, they're using the circumstantial evidence in that uh, iPhones record locally the uh, what programs on your phone are using how much network traffic. This is the database that backs up that part of the iPhone. You can scroll through and it shows you, you know, who's eating up. Why am I paying all this money to Verizon? It'll tell you which app uh, is using that all up. And so it does keep pretty detailed logs. Even then, a number of people uh, in the field have pointed out that they did not do the deep analysis necessary to really draw a conclusion. They're, they're looking at kind of overall data flows when the iOS logs are actually much more detailed uh, and could be you could dive into that and learn a lot about the potential malware. Um, another kind of, to get more technical, you know, the 
iPhone forensics are actually extremely hard, right? Unlike uh, other kinds of devices where if you have the encryption password, you can get a perfect forensic copy of the drive that you can examine without causing any damage. Apple does not provide any kind of capability like that. And so no matter what, you have to manipulate the phone in a way that could possibly mess up the evidence. And they took a number of steps to change the phone that some people think are not appropriate. And then they didn't take a big step, which is using one of the exploits that is known to work against this phone to get full access to the operating system and to image the part of the drive in which you might find that kind of malware. Um, and so it's just, it, it's honestly an incomplete report. It's incomplete for multiple cases, but in the, the case of the WhatsApp, that's what I find completely mystifying. And the language they use about this being like a big, uh, you know, kind of mystery of why this is encrypted is is a real telling sign to me that they didn't really understand how WhatsApp works because anybody who's done forensics on any kind of WhatsApp would, would understand this is how WhatsApp works, this is how the encryption works. The encryption keys are sitting right there in the same SQLite database that they use to, to pull the messages out. Um, and as has been demonstrated on, by a number of people discussing this on Twitter, it is not that hard to get the evidence. And so what I'd like to see now is I'd like to see the phone turned over to somebody else. I think it's time to, to pull in a different team. This is um, I think one of the issues here is that Bezos is going through his personal security detail. He has extremely skilled technical uh, uh, security people in both Amazon.com and Amazon Web Services, but he wanted to keep this a personal thing. Uh, and so he goes through his 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 personal ex-FBI agent security detail and they call their friends who are ex-FBI agents. And um, it's time to get like a, a real kind of deep cybersecurity forensics company involved uh, to to do a, a second look at this. You don't think it's too late? I you don't think the the, the, the phone has been uh, uh, altered in a way by the uh, testing that FTI did? So, I mean, the, the upside is that FTI has, it seems, very well documented what they did. So they have altered it. They, it doesn't sound like they've altered it in a way that should completely destroy the evidence. The, the video is the big one. Right, that there is a MP4 sitting there that could get pulled off of WhatsApp CDN that could be decrypted with an encryption key that's sitting on a local SQLite database on the phone. Um, if you if somebody dumped that MP4 on Twitter, then within 20 minutes you would have 50 good uh, explanations of whether it's malicious or not. So it, this is not crazy hard, and and that evidence should still exist. So if I were Jeff Bezos, I'd say I'm not going to dump the contents of my phone on the internet. No, uh, no. So he's he's got a privacy concern here that's 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 not unreasonable, and I'm guessing that's one reason why there was such care taken to restrict uh, uh, the examination. Um, right. But he, I, uh, what you're saying is this is a case in which a lot of accusations have been made with medium to high confidence that should have been from low to medium at best. Uh, and yes. it would be possible to get more data if they brought in somebody who had a different skill set than the FTI guys. That's right. And, and I think at this point, it's important to get a different firm because if you're this is this report is honestly very embarrassing for FTI. This is going to hurt their reputation in the security industry. CISOs who read this are not going to hire them to do this kind of work. And so um, they are going to be looking to support their conclusion as as aggressively as possible. So I, I think you're going to need a different firm to start from scratch. Um, you know, they, they have some in their end. They talk about these are two investigative steps that are currently pending. They're both smart steps, but they're steps that should have been taken before they came to any conclusions. Yeah. David, do you think there's any any possibility that uh, 
looking over this report, uh, uh, Bezos and Gavin De Becker, FTI, thought, you know, rather than release this to a bunch of cybersecurity guys who aren't going to like it, we'll take it to somebody who can set the framework for the report, uh, for the publicity around it without asking too many technical questions and that that's how it ended up with you? No, I don't, I don't think so. And in fact, I mean, I have to be honest, I feel like some of the, um, some of the Twitter debate has, uh, has kind of assumed that there's some bad faith going on here, which I'm kind of hearing in that question too. And I really don't think that's the case. Um, but, you know, when it comes to the technical part, I, I mean, I can't, I can't respond to the, uh, sort of the analysis that Alex just gave, it's, it seems perfectly legitimate. And, you know, this is the kind of debate I think that, that we need to be having. And, and his ideas for how to move forward, I think, are, are also really valuable. But I, but I don't think that there was a, a kind of effort here to, um, to kind of frame this in a certain way that, that um, had some underlying bad faith. And I also have to say, you know, our our role, I mean, when we received this report, you know, we could have very easily just said, this isn't enough for us. But, you know, we don't look only at the technical side of things. I mean, there, there are a number of other things. And we released a, a timeline um, that had a number of other issues that are, that are really kind of critically important in our understanding the, the overall framework here, including um, the, you know, Citizen Lab documentation of other hacks uh, that were ongoing that gave us the confidence to at least raise these questions. I mean, my hope is that, you know, the steps that Alex is suggesting that at least um, some, if not all of them will be taken and that, you know, we'll get to the bottom of it. But but I don't think it's all that helpful to question kind of the um, the good faith of of either FTI or Bezos or his security team in any of this. And to be clear, Stuart, I don't think David did anything wrong in relying upon this report. I think the questions that, that he and the other rapporteur raised were totally reasonable. I put a lot of this blame, honestly, on the media, specifically The Guardian, who is the newspaper that first talked about this, that released kind of breaking news and a couple of paragraphs without any details. And it's pretty clear they did not show the report to a technical expert that could have advised them to be careful. And so this is I think this is the first, well, it's not the first. We've actually had another one like this. The the GRU Burisma hack was another report from a company that has been questioned that I think got overplayed in the media. We're going to see this over and over again in 2020. Well, I think, it, is, yes, we've, we've everybody in this business has learned that if you put out a, 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 a report that does a reasonably good job of attributing a, an attack in a way that's newsworthy, you're going to get a lot of coverage. Yeah, exactly. And, the, and that's what has happened here is the, you know, I don't think FTI necessarily leaked it, but the the Guardian running with it and then having two or three days of buildup before the technical report was available meant that the media got committed to this narrative that MBS definitely hacked Bezos that they now have to very slowly peel out. And I don't know if you saw, but last night there was a Washington Post editorial where they start with, we don't know if this happened or not, um, which is which is honestly where we should have started a while ago. This should never have been blown up as much as as, as possible. And, and my real fear is this is going to happen in the election, right? Like going into 2020 election, every tech company, every little security consultancy is going to want their name splashed out there. And the media is so primed to write these stories and get the clicks and to 
to beat their competition that we're, we're going to have a lot of misinformation about what's going on because of all the motivations that are lined up. And every candidate saying, uh, I'm the candidate that Vladimir Putin fears most, uh, right. as witnessed yes. by this uh, uh, forensic study that I just had done. Of right. Every fake Twitter account, every fake Facebook account is going to be a Russian troll. Every time somebody clicks on a phishing email, it's because they're being targeted by the GRU or the Iranians. And there is going to be, I think there's going to be foreign interference in our election, but we're not going to be able to deal with it when the the entire conversation is filled with this noise. Can I, I, if I could just say a couple of quick things in response to that. First of all, that, I mean, that seems totally legit. Um, FT uh, actually did a report the same day as um, as The Guardian. It's a, it's, it's a pretty careful uh, overview and it's worth taking a look at. I mean, there, there are kind of two things I think that are useful right at the moment. One is the reporting has, it seems, uh, open the floodgates to a certain extent to other reporting, which I think will be extremely useful. Um, so, for example, the Wall Street Journal reported last week that a source uh, in the royal court of um, of the Crown Prince, uh, you know, said they they were aware of a plan to hack the phone of Mr. Bezos. That kind of reporting, I agree, circumstantial and so forth, but that's actually useful, and it's coming from the journal, which is pretty good. I mean, I think we'd all agree is is pretty uh, careful reporting. The other part of it is, I totally agree with Alex that, about the part of looking toward elections. The other um, sort of the other path I would focus on is the overall private surveillance market. And my, you know, my hope is that you know, regardless, and this is the point of the the Washington Post's editorial, it's that you know we don't know, but nonetheless we do know that there is a private surveillance. Um, market right now that is basically operating uh, without constraint, without a legal framework. And that regardless of where we end up on this, that remains a real critical issue for, um, for us to be focusing on. I would point out that uh, various stories have have mentioned NSO or Gamma Group or Hacking Team, and there is not the slightest bit of evidence tying any one of them to these uh, events, at least not in the FTI report. Uh, 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 and it's a little irresponsible for people to be mentioning the names of companies at this stage, given this level of proof. I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, I, I think that um, you know we do know. Um, that these tools are probably held by a minimal, a small number of, of companies, sold by a small number of companies. Um, and, you know, to give some sense of, of the kind of uh, thing that we're talking about, I don't think it, it hurts to say, you know, such as X company. I mean, WhatsApp and Facebook have already sued NSO Group for doing something quite similar to this. Absolutely. But there's, a, you know, tying that to this particular story, I think is premature right? and uh, maybe not the most responsible thing I, I think uh, I think the FDI report may may mention them uh, as well the uh, uh, the you your your statement David mentioned them I just think uh, we don't have any evidence about a particular company um, and since they're all subject to very different jurisdictions Israel Europe uh, uh, not the US uh, oddly um, uh, 
that'll have different public policy implications. But um, look, you guys have been terrific. I, this is a deep dive on an issue that uh, we're going to hear more about because uh, I think the pressure will mount on FTI and on uh, Gavin DeBecker uh, and on uh, Jeff Bezos to have somebody else take a look at this and see what they can find. Uh, so thanks to, you, to all two of you. Thanks a lot, Stuart. Thanks for having me. All right. That was David Kay, uh, the UN Rapporteur for Freedom of Expression, and Alex Stamos uh, uh, with the Stanford Internet uh, Observatory uh, and formerly Chief Security Officer for Facebook. Uh, uh, thanks to both of them for joining us. Uh, this has been Episode 297 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Don't forget to send comments to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, and if you suggest somebody for an interview, we will send you one of our highly coveted uh, Cyberlaw Podcast mugs. Uh, give us a, uh, um, a a review on iTunes or Google Play, or we're getting, we're, we're really trending on Spotify. So uh, give us a review there as well. Uh, uh, wherever you get your podcast, we would welcome it. Uh, please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology security, privacy, and government.